Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday, it's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's the Ringer Gambling Show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on all of the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explorer page in the post and bet live same-game parlays for every. NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen at the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and up in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Podcast. Austin Gill here with Warren Sharp, as always, on Wednesday, November 9th, recording this podcast at 7.30 a.m. PT. I want to get into some games. We're going to talk Seahawks at Bucks, Browns at Dolphins, Colts at Raiders, just for the vibes. I think this is just an absurd game where I don't even know how betting markets take into account a high school coach being named an interim head coach with no offensive play caller on the team. I'm excited to talk that game as well. And then, obviously, Vikings at Bills. I think that's the game of the week. That line opened... At seven and a half, Bills favored. Now some question marks around the UCL injury for Josh Allen. Bills now only favored by four at home. Before we get into the game, so I know you wrote a piece recently on the Chicago Bears, which are a hot and trendy item, even though they lost to the Miami Dolphins every single week. And I've been writing this in our power rankings file for the ringer.com every single week. It looks like Justin Fields is getting better, better running the football. He obviously set the single, you know, the regular season single game rushing yards record with 178 yards. I encourage you, if you are a football fan, go and watch the guy that he broke, that record he broke. It was Michael Vick in overtime against the Vikings, and it was bananas. What Justin Fields did to beat that guy is pretty insane. But Fields improving every single week. This offense looking a lot better, running the football effectively. I think if you look at players with 80 or more carries, I think it's Justin Fields and Khalil Herbert who lead the NFL in yards per carry. Both those guys having a lot of success. Warren, what are you seeing with the Chicago Bears? Yeah, first of all, you mentioned that run, that uh, game against the Vikings for Vic. Obviously, Vic is near and dear to my heart, one of my favorite on-field players that I've ever watched. And he absolutely uh, had had just a, a run that is iconic in that game, really stands out and memorable. So I do agree with that recommendation to go watch Vic's highlights from the Minnesota Vikings game. Um, 
you know, the thing for me is I always like to look at, okay, what has changed with the team? Like how all of a sudden are the Chicago Bears doing what they're doing and what are they doing? Well, they started off the season averaging only 15 and a half points per game through the first six weeks. That ranked 31st in the NFL. Their quarterback was taking sacks at the number one highest rate in the NFL at 16.7% of his dropbacks resulted in sacks. If that number sounds high, it obviously is. Not only was it the highest in the season to date, it was the highest for any quarterback in any season since at least 2000, which is as far back as true media's data goes. Now, if you look only at the first six weeks of the season, there is one quarterback who took sacks at a higher rate than that, and that was none other than David Carr, Derek's Carr's brother. And some of you guys were football fans back in 2002 when the Houston Texans were an expansion team, and this team did absolutely nothing to build an offensive line to protect him. And that is the quarterback who took more sacks at a higher rate than Justin Fields in the first six weeks. Otherwise, he was the highest in the NFL uh, even in just the first six weeks. So what changed? What is, how has this team gone from what it was doing there to something I think that is really remarkable, which is the last three weeks, they are scoring on 53% of their drives. That's number one highest wow. in the NFL. Number one highest in the NFL. And they're averaging thir over 31 points per game, which is number five best in the NFL. So how do they go from point A to point B? Well, it's almost entirely related to the fact that on third downs, Justin Fields is not taking sacks at the, anywhere close to the rate that he was. And they're allowing him to pass the ball more often in the red zone. And those plays are being more, are, are much more efficient. So I wrote this piece up at Fox Sports, which details, you know, the first, um, like on occasion, I've, it's, it's happened this season where it's not a team that I'm regularly working for, but I get called in by like a, an offensive coordinator or a head coach who wants me to help the offensive coordinator. Just like do a do a deep dive analysis into some things that I'm noticing with the offense, like a self-scout analysis. So I prepare a, a report and some of my findings and then have a couple of phone calls to discuss that. And so one of the places that I'll always start with is like, okay, what, what is this team doing on early downs? What's their early down efficiency? And what I noticed here with the Chicago Bears is there was no difference. Weeks one to six to week seven to nine, and this is in the piece. You can go read the details. I, I highly encourage it. I actually haven't tweeted it out yet. I'm going to tweet it out uh, later today on Wednesday. But uh, the first six weeks of the season, this team ranked 30th on percentage of early downs to gain a first down. And now they rank 28th the last three weeks. And they ranked 27th in EPA per play on early downs the first six weeks. And they ranked 25th the last couple of weeks. And, and the, the percentages or the EPAs are, are very, very similar. So it wasn't, they're better on early downs. And then you say, okay, well, what were they doing on third downs? And that is where the difference lies. On third downs, their third down conversion rate, weeks one to six, was only 35%. It's now 55%. Their EPA per play was low. Their EPA per play right now is third best in the NFL. Both their third down conversion rate and their third down EPA per play is third best in the NFL over the last three weeks. Most of the time, that's going to come from the fact that you have fewer yards to go on third down because that's so closely correlated to how often you're going to convert. But in the Bears case, that's not true at all. They averaged 7.4 yards to go the first six weeks and 7.3 the last three weeks. Those numbers ranked like still worse than 20th in the NFL. 
it's basically solely hinged on the fact that over the first six weeks, Justin Fields was taking sacks on 15% of his dropbacks, whereas now that's down to 3%. He's taken one sack over the last three weeks. He's scrambling a lot more. He's converting these plays into first down. And Ben Solak over at The Ringer wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about Sam Ellinger and why he was inserted. Now, I personally don't think that's why Sam Ellinger was inserted. Like, I think this is just Jim Mersey being Jim Mersey and wanting to do something totally different. But Ben's completely accurate in that there's not just an upside in having a quarterback that's mobile. It's also that you aren't taking the sack and then also turning that into a scramble for a first down that's so massive that just EPA alone can't account for. Um, and so that's one of the big things. And then the other thing is like what they're doing down inside of the red zone, which is he's passing the ball at a significantly higher rate. In the first uh, six weeks of the season, 81% of their red zone yardage was rushing yardage. That's down to only 56% over the last three weeks. And Justin Fields, when he passes the ball in the red zone, is 9 of 10, 55% success, five touchdowns, no interceptions over the last three weeks. So yes, they're overall probably calling some better plays. And, and yes, he's being more efficient in the red zone. But I always try to turn an analysis like this where I'm coming away with some valuable findings into something that's beneficial for us from a betting perspective. What can we do with this information from a betting perspective? They're taking on the Detroit Lions this week. The problem is this, Austin, like third down efficiency isn't really correlated to long-term efficiency. It's, it's what you do on early downs that's correlated. And so the fact that Justin Fields is turning what had been sacks into scrambles that are producing first downs and he's not punting the football, they were punting the ball at one of the highest rates in the NFL, like 40% of their drives were punts, that's down substantially. Um, I mean, it's a positive for their team, but they're still not generating enough early down efficiency for me to say like, this is a bankable thing that I think is going to be incredible moving forward. And this team has really turned a corner. I love the fact that he's running more on third down and not taking these sacks. But until they improve their early down efficiency, I'm not ready to start like absolutely massively buying them. Now, they're, I, I like the matchup they've got this week, but just big picture, I'm, I'm happy where they're at, but they still need to improve on early downs. Any thoughts on any of that? Or, or what's your takeaway on what you've seen out of the Bears the last few weeks? I think I think it's interesting that in the red zone and and on third downs, two areas where we know that's like efficiency is can be pretty volatile is where they're improving. But I also am backing this idea that Justin Fields is gaining confidence in this offense every single week, and I think you're seeing him more decisive with the football throwing. He's more decisive when he's choosing to scramble, and that's how he's having so much success running the football. And I think. The short term of it, you know, I think the Bears this week are favored by three over the Detroit Lions at home. Total set at 48 and a half. There's probably winnable games on their schedule, much more winnable games than what we saw from this Justin Fields led offense in the first parts of the season. But I think more of me wants to look at 2023 and 2024 and how the Chicago Bears leverage over $112 million in cap space to start to actually build around Justin Fields. I know their trade for Chase Claypool is a part of that, but the offensive line needs to improve. Their other receivers need to improve. Like there's still a lot that Chicago can do to spend the cap space, to draft, to build around Justin Fields. And I think after week three, if you ask me what this, you know, Chicago Bears team was going to do with Justin Fields, I wouldn't be surprised if they were ready to move on from him because they weren't, you know, actively looking to build around him. He was really struggling. And 
there weren't a lot of signs that showed the front office was buying into him as a long-term answer. They weren't throwing the football. Like they were refusing to throw the football. Now they're opening things up a little bit more. They're encouraging him to run the ball. They're creating, you know, calling more designed runs to, to take advantage of his rushing ability. I think you're starting to see the Chicago coaching staff and subsequently the Chicago front office buy into Justin Fields a lot more, which I think hopefully leads to them building around him and then putting some pieces around him beyond just Chase Claypool, Darnell Mooney. I think the offensive line, specifically the interior, can get a lot better. And honestly, you need more receiving help even beyond those two guys. On to the games. Seattle Seahawks at Tampa Bay Buccaneers is where I want to start. I think you could argue this is one of the games of the week, but it's a hard one to bet. And I always find these hard to bet, especially on the West Coast, because it starts at 6.30 a.m. PT. So you're going to have to get up early if you're betting Seahawks at Bucks. I think it's the inaugural game for the NFL in Germany. I know Good Morning Football, those guys are out in Germany. I know Roger Sherman, who is on this podcast on Thursdays with me, is writing a piece about the surge in fandom for the NFL in Germany. Well, they're going to see Tom Brady, but they're also going to see Geno Smith. Geno Smith, one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the NFL this season. A crazy comeback story. I think he's the glaring favorite to win comeback player of the year. Seahawks. On the road, technically, in Germany. Bucks are on the road, too, in Germany. Are two-and-a-half-point dogs against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So two-and-a-half points under the Bucks on a neutral field. Your reaction to this line, I think there's a lot of Seahawks fans and even some NFL fans that would argue that the Seattle Seahawks could be favored in this game with how poorly the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have played this year. But Bucks are favored two-and-a-half points on a neutral field in Germany. Your reactions to this line and the strengths of these teams. Yeah, the, well, just first and foremost, I could tell you that the Bucks was a very sharp position from some groups that came in early, laid the money line, laid the minus one, and that's why we're up to two and a half right now. Might we get to three? I think it's obviously worth holding on and waiting for if you're looking to back Seattle here. There's no reason to rush into this, in my opinion, knowing that the sharp money is absolutely on Tampa Bay and also knowing the fact that, you know, I think Seattle is one of those darling teams among some of the Twitter folk and some of the, uh, you know, let's just say analytics crowd that's like, oh, Geno Smith really is doing this. He is really real. But I, th I think we'd be shocked to know the small, small, small percentage of people that are actually on Twitter, like digging through all this data, reading these tweets, like living the life of NFL Twitter 24 seven. Like there are so many people out there that are like, Tom Brady just knocked off the Rams. Tom Brady is back. Tom Brady is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL and he's laying under a field goal and I'm going to back Tom Brady. And so while the Seahawks again are becoming sort of public darlings, I do think that there's going to be a lot of, obviously the Sharps guys are there, but I think there's also going to be some, some of the public that's going to want to back Tom Brady here. It's, it's it's a shorter travel as well. You know, that's been analyzed some. Um, this is a step up in class for the Seattle Seahawks offense going up against this Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. Um, Seattle has played the third easiest schedule of opposing defenses. Uh, actually, the number two easiest schedule of opposing defenses. And now they're going to step up. And I think one of the underrated factors, I was actually doing some research this morning as I'm writing up this game, is the return of Akeem Hicks and Akeem Hicks and what he means. And obviously, you know, betting on the Chicago Bears on or against the Chicago Bears for, for years now, like knowing whether or not Akeem Hicks is playing was massive to determining whether or not you're going to bet on the Bears because you needed to know whether or not he was going to help clog up the run lanes. And 
sure enough, even going to one of the better run defenses in the NFL, it is shocking the difference that he has made when he's on the field and when he's not. And he's not been on the field very much because he was injured midway through the game in week two and did not return over the next several weeks until last week, week nine. It was his first week back. So he was played fully weeks one and week nine and part of week two, and he was out the rest of the time. So what are the splits? Well, he doesn't play much on third down, so let's remove those. On early downs against running back runs, with Hicks off the field, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are allowing 4.8 yards per carry. That's down to 3.7 when he's there. They're allowing a 37% success rate. That's down to 28% when he's there. But more than any of those things is the yards before contact per rush. When he's not out on the field, they're allowing 1.4 yards before contact per rush. When he's been out on the field, 0.5. That's a massive decline in running back efficiency and their ability to get started downhill and their ability to get past that line of scrimmage before getting contacted. And he is going to make a difference because what do we know about Kenneth Walker? We know that Seattle likes to use him. Seattle is getting more confidence in using him, but his success rate is the worst of any running back in the NFL. He, he, this is not an offense that's very productive. They've been relying on him to break these bigger explosive runs, which he does. I mean, he didn't go over his longest rushing prop for the first time, I think, of the season last week, or at least since the first time he's been starting it was last week. I think he had like a 16-yarder or a 15-yarder. His prop is usually right around 17 and a half. Um, every other week, he's gone you know, bigger chunk runs than that. But if he's not getting those chunk runs, like this rushing attack is very uh, impotent. And the problem is, you know, now you got Akeem Hicks there. So I think from that respect, it's going to be interesting. Seattle's defense trending a lot better. It's going to be a challenge for Tom Brady in this Bucks offense. I always watch these games with the perspective of how often are we going to see first down runs? Because we saw a ton of them last week. They were very inefficient, but guess what? So was the first down passing. Um, but I do feel like they won the game. They're going to keep leaning into running the ball more on first down. They were working in Rashad White a lot more on those first down runs, and he did provide more punch than Leonard Fournette. But I mean, this is going to be a pretty predictable thing at 6.30 a.m. for you out there when you wake up watching Tampa Bay hand the ball off on first downs to one of their running backs. I feel that in the betting markets, what might be most undervalued for the Seattle Seahawks is this defense and how much it's improved because it's still a defense that I think ranks outside the top 20 in total points per game allowed. And a lot of that was getting bludgeoned in the first three weeks of the season. Looking at defensive success rate since week four, this Seattle Seahawks are third in the NFL in defensive success rate since week four. And in that same time, you know, in that same span of weeks, they're ninth in yards per play allowed. This, this Seattle defense has improved a lot. And I think we've talked about it multiple times where, you know, Pete Carroll has made changes to this defense that have shown improvement. And that, in my opinion, is a lot for a Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense that has not had that same success over the last, you know, X amount of weeks, right? They're still eighth in defensive success rate. I think they're like top 10 in yards per play allowed over those like last weeks. Or, or since week four, but it's not a defense that was the juggernaut that it was to start the season. And I think a lot of people are still banking on this Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense being healthier and being that juggernaut that a lot of people wanted them to be this year. I don't know. I think Seattle's defense and Tampa Bay's defense have both shown a lot of success in recent weeks. Seattle not getting the credit that they deserve. And offensively, the problem I have with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is not how often they run the ball on first downs. It's not how efficient that even is. It's 
and I think Romo, the broadcaster, called this out a lot in this game where they came back and won against Los Angeles Rams, is just a lot of untimely drops and, and just bad execution in the high leverage areas. It, this is one of the worst teams in the NFL in sustaining drives and finishing drives. Their third down conversion rate is bottom five in the NFL. Their red zone efficiency is bottom five in the NFL. Like They are not efficient enough in the areas where you need to be to score points. And I think a lot of that's personnel. A lot of that's personnel and execution. It's personnel execution. It's like having guys to go to in the red zone, having guys to go to on third and fourth downs is a lot of what those mismatches are. Right now, you can't have offensive scheme that elevates that, but I just don't think we're seeing that from Byron Leftwich. I think Leftwich has been cast a very bad hand in terms of the supporting talent that he has offensively in these high leverage areas, third and fourth downs, but it's not near the depths of the league, right? There's no reason a Tom Brady led team with Mike Evans, with Chris Godwin, with Russell Gage, this offensive line still has two good bookend tackles should be bottom five in efficiency in the red zone or bottom five in efficiency on third downs. I think that's a reflection of coaching. Those high leverage areas, things need to get better, whether that's execution and repping more things out or calling, you know, or calling better plays. That's where this team needs to improve. I don't see that getting better against the Seattle Seahawks. And I'm sure Pete Carroll knows that. And forcing third downs and forcing them to go you know, matriculate down the football field and, and achieve third downs, I think is how the Seattle Seahawks team is going to have the edge in this game. On a neutral site, I, I, I agree with the line. I agree with the sharp movement. But if this line gets to three, I'm probably not betting it right away. If this line gets to three, I'm definitely taking Seattle. I like Seattle as a three-point dog on a neutral field. I think there's a lot of reasons to buy the improvement from the Seattle Seahawks in recent weeks, both offensively and defensively. Whereas with Tampa Bay, it's very Tom Brady dependent. And, and it's very who has the possession last. Because this defense has not had the same amounts of success that they had to start the year. And in these high leverage areas, there aren't obvious reasons to back this getting better. It's going to be bad every you know, week after week after week. Um, so I'm probably going to wait on this line to see if Seattle gets the three and then take them at plus three. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Two things that I push back on a little bit. The first one is, yes, Seattle's defense, I think both things can be correct here. Seattle's defense has shown improvement, but they've also played the third easiest schedule in the NFL over that time span that you're suggesting since week four. I mean, you look at the offenses that they played. They played in Arizona. Kyler Murray led offense one of the weeks. They did not have DeAndre Hopkins. And that's an offense that's like off the rails. I mean, they're, everybody's yelling at each other on the sideline. Kyler thinks that like it's everybody else's fault but him. I don't know what's going on there. The best offense that they played in terms of year-to-date rankings uh, was the New York Giants. And you and I both know that while the Giants might rank 14th in DVOA, the New York Giants offense that went out to Seattle that was playing with all this jet lag of traveling across the globe, including over to London, the same New York Giants that lost two starting offensive linemen the prior game, lost their starting tight end, has no wide receivers to begin with. Like that is nowhere near the 14th best offense in the NFL. And that was the best team that this Seattle Seahawks defense has faced. I mean, we're talking about they played, I mean, we just saw Andy Dalton's team. That That's one of the teams that they played, the Saints offense. They also played the uh, LA Chargers who, you know, they're down Keenan Allen and Mike Williams was there, but uh, still that's not a very potent offense in terms of weapons. And that leads me to, so I think the Seahawks defense is improving. And I agree with you hundred percent that Pete Carroll has changed some things and he's getting more out of this off, uh, out of this defense. And so I'm optimistic. The other good news from that regard is that 
you don't really play very many good offenses until you get down to week 15, 16, where you're going to take on the 49ers, you're going to take on the Kansas City Chiefs in back-to-back weeks. Otherwise, Seattle has a bye after this game. They take on the Raiders, then the Rams again. Uh, sorry, not again, but they take on the Rams for the first time of the year, and they take on the Carolina Panthers. I mean, these offenses aren't good. So Seattle's defense is still going to look really good, in my opinion. Um, the second one is the talent issue. I 100% agree with you that Leftwich has been a big time problem with his play calling stuff. I've heard him discuss in the media shows a general lack of understanding about some of these things that we hold high in high regard. But I mean, from a talent perspective, like on these third downs and leverage situations, I don't, I don't necessarily agree that he doesn't have the talent. Like this team, if you look at that receiving core and compare them to most teams in the league, I think there's over 50% of teams at minimum that would trade for the weapons that they have. Now that Kate Otten is getting a little bit, they, they needed a little bit more familiarity with him and Brady, but I think that they're picking up on that as they get in some work together. He's no Gronk, obviously, but he's at least he's somebody there. Tom Brady likes to utilize the tight ends, um, but it's at the receiver position. It's the backs out of the backfield. There's just so many more things that this offense could be doing rather than handing the ball off on like, 70% of their first downs in the first half of games. And uh, that's what's leading them into these third and long situations. I mean, I, I did the analysis last week. The Bucks have the worst third down and long conversion rate of any team in the NFL since at least 2000. And they've been forced into the seventh most third and long situations. And it's in large part, the only way you get forced into third and long is if you're dog shit on first and second down. And we see that far too often. I mean, they, they're shooting themselves in the foot with some of their play calling, in, in my opinion. And um, I am excited to see how the Saints defense and Pete Carroll specifically scheme up game plan against them and try to stop what they do because they feel like they are very predictable on those first downs. Man, I, I, I can't imagine Tom Brady and this Buccaneers team taking the flight back from Germany with a loss in Seattle Seahawks, <laughs> Geno Smith. But it is something that I'll probably be betting. It, it, when it gets to Sunday, if I see this line get to three, I'm probably betting Seattle Seahawks, uh, Geno Smith. And I will wake up at 6.30 a.m. to watch that spectacle. Next game I want to talk about is Cleveland Browns at Miami Dolphins. I think that in the AFC, the playoff race is going to be hotly contested. I think we're going to be talking about who are the three wildcard teams deep into weeks 16, 17, 18, all of those. And, and for me, Miami Dolphins are a part of that. I don't think they ultimately win the AFC East. I think it's the Bills. So Miami Dolphins are firmly in that wildcard race. Cincinnati Bengals, I don't think they win the AFC North. I think they're firmly in that conversation. Los Angeles Chargers, New York Jets, New England Patriots, all four, five of those teams vying for three different spots. And that doesn't even include, and why I'm talking about this game, some resurgence from, say, the Cleveland Browns who have three wins on the season and obviously will have Deshaun Watson returning as a starter after week 11. And then you have the Denver Broncos who are coming off a of bye this week, have three wins on the season and maybe could see a resurgence as well. The AFC is going to come down to the wire, the absolute wire in terms of who these three wildcard teams are. I think this game is a big part of it. Miami Dolphins are three and a half point favorites. I think four in some spots over the Cleveland Browns. I think a lot of people are surprised that the Dolphins aren't favored by more. They're one of the hottest offenses in the NFL. I don't think there's a single week that goes by that Mike McDaniel isn't you know, going viral on social media for something funny he said or any of those links. And then Tua Tungabailoa and Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill are breaking records every single week. Why are the Dolphins only a three-and-a-half-point favorite over the Cleveland Browns, and how do you view this game? 
it's entirely because of sharp money has bet it down. I mean, the Miami Dolphins were favored by, I want to say, five and a half points. Um, and five points, five and a half, and sharp money has been buying the Cleveland Browns left and right uh, at anything above three, right? I think I think they're going to stop it when it gets down to three, if that's where it ultimately gets. But it's it's sharp money that's buying it down. And part of the reason here is if you look at the Cleveland Browns, um, this is a team, let's start with their offense going up against the Miami Dolphins. There's two things that I am looking at here that I think benefit the Cleveland Browns. And it's, it's going to be tough for them to run the football. I think that's one thing that's going to be quite clear. The strength of Miami, their defense, is against the run. And we know that that's what Cleveland likes to do. Cleveland's number two rushing offense, Miami's number seven run defense. They allow very few yards before contact per rushing attempt. They've played the 12th toughest schedule of opposing run offenses. So, you know, they've been tested to some extent and they've held up and they rank 31st against the pass. So that is their lone weakness. And you say, okay, well, it's actually a good matchup for Miami because we could stop the run and then force Jacoby Brissett to beat us through the air. Okay, break. Let's go. I'll, I'd be down for something like that. But here's the one thing that I think Jacoby Brissett might surprise people a little bit. Um, first of all, the Miami Dolphins have been struggling to get pressure. And when they're not getting pressure, uh, and, and as a result of that, they're having to blitz more. And their blitz rate has gone up, but their pressure rate still really isn't going up in turn, which means that they're having a lot more dropbacks where they're blitzing but not getting pressure. And that is going to be a catastrophe against Jacoby Brissett because he has been great this season when he faces a blitz, but that pressure doesn't get home, when he gets rid of the ball before the pressure gets home. Now, if the pressure gets there, he's been terrible. But when that pressure doesn't get there and there's no team in the NFL who has more blitzes that don't record pressure than the Miami Dolphins, and he's been great against that. The other thing that Jacoby Brissett um, has massive splits against is two high safety looks. And no team plays it less than Miami, obviously. Miami plays a ton of man and, and they blitz and they play man coverage behind it. And they don't really play any too high. And season long or like just in the last several weeks, Jacoby Brissett's splits when he plays too high versus single high are night and day. I'm going to read off all the numbers, but just take me for my word that that's the case. Um, and so those are points that I guess speak to why is this line coming down? Why aren't the Dolphins favored by more? They have this high-flying offense. They seem to be able to score, whether it's home or on the road. They've got Tua back. He hasn't lost a game for them with him starting. And trust me, I'm a massive Tua fan, and I do think that Miami's going to have a chance to be productive here. And one of the things I look at this Browns defense is, you know, I'll, I'll conclude with this, is just like my concern with the Browns defense on that side of the ball is, yes, they are getting pressure at a pretty good rate. And so that's going to be the key element to this game is can Tua and Mike McDaniel get rid of the ball when they're passing it because they pass it at an above average rate before he gets pressured because they've only played two above average teams in pressure rate. That was the Bills and the Patriots. And they scored 20 and 21 points in those two games. And they won those games by razor thin margins. Um, and Tua has been better against the Blitz and he's been better against pressure since he came back over these last couple of games. But 
the Steelers, the Lions, and the Bears don't really get a lot of pressure. And so now you're going to be playing one of the teams that do get a lot of pressure in the Cleveland Browns. They better be ready for that. But the one thing that I'm going to uh, end with here is I look at the strength of schedule that this Cleveland Browns defense has played. It ranks number 16 in the NFL in terms of the passing offenses that they've gone up against. So it's like league average. You say, okay, they've played some decent passing offenses thus far. I mean, look at these teams individually and tell me how this could be approximately league average. Week one, they play the number 32 passing attack and they get Baker Mayfield. Week two, they play the number 19 passing attack of the Jets and they get Joe Flacco. Week three, they play the number 22 passing attack of the Steelers and they get Mitch Trubisky. And week six, they play the number 26 passing attack of the Patriots and they get Bailey Zappi. Okay, that's half of their games, four games, are against below average to well below average passing attacks and they're getting the backups that are the current backups for all of those teams. Then they play the Atlanta Falcons who have an above average passing attack completed a total of seven passes in that game because A, they don't pass the ball and B, they ran for 202 yards instead. So they didn't really need to pass the ball. The Cleveland lost that game. Atlanta won the game and Marcus Mariota completed only seven passes. The other three teams that you played, you played the Chargers who were without their wide receiver one, Keenan Allen, the Bengals who were without their wide receiver one in Jamar Chase, and the Ravens who were playing wide receiver one, Rashard Bateman on a foot injury, and he played just 56% of the slaps, snaps because he was laboring through this injury. I mean, this Browns team has played a ton of backups, a ton of teams without their number one wide receiver, uh, and a team that just doesn't even pass the ball. Now you're going up against a Dolphins team that passes at a very high rate and has two receivers that arguably could be a number one wide receiver on maybe half the teams out there, maybe 30 to 40% of the teams out there in terms of Jalen Waddle. So like, this is a very potent offense that's very different from what the Browns have played before. So that's painting the other side of the picture here to show what I think the Dolphins offense has the ability to do, but they're going to have to figure out a way to get rid of that ball when they're under pressure. This is easily the best passing offense that the Cleveland Browns have faced all season. They do have the edge in rest. There are they are coming off a bye in week nine, but I don't know how much, I don't know how much that's going to help against Jalen Wall and Tyreek Hill. These guys are different, and if you don't have the dogs to do it on the back end to keep pace with them, you're going to lose. You have to call a lot of zone coverage, and you have to get pressure. And what Miami has done a really good job of, and I think Mike McDaniel gets a lot of credit for having a very creative offense, and he's you know running the ball really effectively, and he's he's leveraging a lot of different personnel, but he's also doing a lot to get the ball out of Tua Tungavailoa's hands quickly. RPOs, quick game, that kind of stuff that avoids some of this under-pressure mistakes that you'll see from Tua Tungavailoa. And you look at even this past game against the Chicago Bears, some of his worst throws in that game, or a lot of his worst throws in that game, are coming when he's pressured and he has to reset his feet and he has to move the pocket. They want him to stay in the pocket and just fire the ball at will. Now, what Cleveland can do to do that is obviously getting pressure with four and playing zone on the back end. So I do think it's going to be a bigger challenge uh, it's going to be a bigger challenge than maybe what the Bears defense had on the back end, but I do think that Miami defensively against Jacoby Brissett, where you're going to see a lot of blitzes, where you're going to see a lot of man coverage, and these guys have to get open, it could be a big Amari Cooper game. I think that's the best separator on this team, but I don't know if they have enough receivers in addition to Amari Cooper to beat up on a Miami Dolphins team that has had a lot of success running high man coverage, running blitzes, and all that stuff. I, I like the Miami Dolphins as a favorite. I probably don't take them with the hook. I think that's that's screaming 
taking you know the Cleveland Browns at three and a half, but is that a square bet? I don't know. Am I looking at this three and a half for the Cleveland Browns as a square bet on the road? That's that's the sharp side. I mean, Cleveland is the sharp side here. Uh, so taking them plus the points, if you're going to do it, you want to take it before it gets down to three, obviously. Um, and I don't know. It's it's so early in the week. It's only after Tuesday to look at you know bet splits, but clearly it looks like the vast majority of tickets are coming in on the Miami Dolphins, and that's not surprising whatsoever because the public loves betting offense and receivers. And you know, look, we're we're in a yeah. season right now where there aren't very men, much of either, right? Like a lot of wide receiver ones are going down. Um, you don't have a lot of explosion in the passing attack. You don't have teams that are scoring touchdowns from distance. Everybody's having, having to drive the ball into the red zone to score their points. And um, it's just, you know, you don't have these high flying attacks. And so when you see one that actually looks great and is putting up some points in Chicago last week and, and the week before that, I, I think you're going to be drawn to wanting to bet on that team. And then you're betting against a team in the Cleveland Browns who like who is excited to bet on the Cleveland Browns in the first place. And secondly, they didn't even play last week. So the memory of their game against the Cincinnati Bengals that they won is like completely lost from people's brains for the most part. So, um, yeah, the, the Cleveland Browns are, are absolutely the sharp side here. I think this is uh, going to set up to be a sharp versus square game. And. It's it's really easy. If you like, you, sharps are winning this year and squares are winning this year. Like you, it, I don't like to view things as you know what's the side based upon what those groups. I, I like to cap things and bet things my own way. But one thing is obviously clear in this game: if you didn't get the four, you need to get the three and a half. If you want the Browns, if you want the Dolphins, don't be running to lay the three and a half as you see the line keep continuing to tick down. You wait and see if you can grab a three. So if you want, it, it's the same as the last game that we discussed on, you know, Seattle. If you want to bet Seattle and you see the line is going from one to two, don't run to buy the two and a half to three now. Wait to see if it gets to three. In this case, if you want to lay Miami, wait to see if it gets down to, uh, sorry, if you want to lay Miami, wait to see if you can get this line down to minus three naturally rather than buying the hook. That makes sense. I think I'm going to back Cleveland at plus three and a half then. Side with the Sharks before this does get down to three. If it does get down to three before I lay, dead, lay down bets, maybe I'm leaning Miami minus three. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. 
Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. All right, next game. We could probably go quickly through this. I just think it is a wild game to bet. Indianapolis Colts at Las Vegas Raiders. One of my favorite, I, I'm, a, I'm an Oakland Raiders fan. I am from Oakland. I had season tickets with my dad for about 10 years. One of my favorite beat writers, Vic Tafer of The Athletic, has been covering the Raiders for a long time. And he said, very abruptly, there's no friggin' way the Raiders lose to the Colts. They don't have, they, they just hired a new coach. They didn't have a play caller until Tuesday. The bad QB, bad offensive line. There's no way the Raiders lose to the Indianapolis Colts. Obviously, the Colts firing Frank Reich. Jim Mersey had that press conference. He brought in Jeff Saturday, who his only coaching experience is coaching high school. They just named a the 30-year-old Parks Frazier uh, the offensive play caller as of Tuesday. The Indianapolis Colts, even before they fired Frank Reich, really struggle against the New England Patriots. It's one of the worst offensive games I think we've seen this year, right? And so the Colts are still on the road against the Raiders just six-point dogs in this game. Jeff Saturday's debut as a head coach. Park Frazier debut as an offensive play caller. And the Raiders can't even get seven? Total set at 42 and a half at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. Am I wrong to want to take out a second mortgage and lay it on the Raiders at minus six? I, de- I just don't see how you can't even get over a score against this Colts team. Is that... Now, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. I need, I need you to help sort this out for me. Well, so we're going to hit this game relatively quickly. And I won't get into all the nitty gritty like X's and O's with you here because I'm not quite sure the approach that Jeff Saturday is going to take. Obviously, we were all surprised at that hire and surprised that there's nobody on the staff that has experience calling plays at the NFL level. And you go from, you know, like there's three things that you would look at to as a resource for, for calling plays, in my opinion. Number one, you're looking at your offensive coordinator. Okay, who's going to call me my plays? Like, this is the guy that I've worked with, sat with for weeks. I'm the quarterback. I need somebody to call my plays. You you fired him two weeks ago. Okay, so, and he wasn't calling the plays anyways, but he was the one working closest with you on developing the offense. Okay, so he's out. So, well, then, did, was I fortunate enough to have a head coach to call plays? Well, yeah, you fired him too just last week. So now he's out. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to lean on the quarterback himself. Like maybe he's a veteran quarterback who's got experience in the system who, no, this is a, this is a brand new quarterback who's, who's making one of his first starts of his career in a system that they just installed and has been clearly terrible over the past. So like Ellinger is not going to be able to contribute anything to this. And I was wondering what Saturday's approach was going to be. Would he go back to Nick Foles? Or was he going to stick with Ellinger? And the fact that he made it very crystal clear at the press conference, we're starting Ellinger, tells me everything that I, like the small percentage in my mind that I wasn't convinced of this, I'm now fully convinced that Jim Mersey told Frank Reich, you're going to start Sam Ellinger the rest of the year. And after doing so for a game, they, I don't know who's, 
call that was to fire the OC. I thought it was a joke and pathetic and like, yeah, maybe this is too strong a word, but somewhat dishonorable to, to do that because I don't think he was responsible for the game plan with Sam Ellinger or anything like that. Uh, but then the fact that you get rid of Frank Reich tells me that there must have been some sort of like insubordination or desire on Reich's part to be done with this situation because I don't see how if Ursay tells you you're going to have to start Ellinger, which now we know is the case because that's who his hand-picked replacement coach from outside the organization is starting, is Sam Ellinger as well. Ursay says you have to start Ellinger, and Reich says, okay, fine. And then Reich starts him and they lose. Like, you're blaming the coach for that? The owner picked the quarterback who's clearly not ready to play as the quarterback. Why are you then firing the coach? Something had to go on there in the meeting where there was uh, a pushback from Reich, and now he's out as well. I do think the whole situation is a disaster. I do think there's opportunity for some problems internally now because you have all these coaches that got passed over, because you've got an owner telling them this is the quarterback that you must start, because there's probably clearly a better quarterback on that roster named Nick Foles, who's not being given the opportunity to start, which is going to hurt all the other players that are playing there and their ability to have success, which hurts their careers as well. I, I, I think there's a lot of trouble brewing there. Usually, the sharp betters will run to back a team that fires their head coach. That didn't necessarily happen here. But what also didn't happen, which is interesting to note, is that this line didn't go from six and a half to seven. This line stayed at six and a half despite them A, firing Frank Reich, and then B, hiring a guy without any coaching experience at the college or pro level from outside of the building. And look, you could say he was a consultant, okay? I heard what types of consulting he was doing. It's like a phone call with the owner or a, a phone call with the GM or showing up like during the off season. Guess what? That's the type of consultant I am. Like, I'm not getting a call to like immediately come and be a head coach. Now, obviously, totally night and day difference. But the point is, you can't say that, oh, he was a quote unquote consultant. And that means like he was inside the building and working with these players and knows the coaching staff inside and out and knows with the players like he he was hands off all of that stuff. So everything is going to be new to him. He was like touring the facility his first day there. The other thing that spoke to me was the fact that he arrives and he does this press conference and they ask him, have you met with your players yet? And he said, no, I haven't. It's like to me, if I am getting there and I'm the new coach and I don't know these guys and I all of a sudden have to coach them in five days and we're going on a road trip, we're leaving in three days or four days, like I am calling the players back to the facility and we're breaking things down and I'm talking to them before I I spend time with a press conference. They went to the press conference and he's going to meet the players the next day. It's like, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know. And I've got nothing that I can provide to you, unfortunately, that can help you in one direction or the other. Um, I just know that this typically is a situation you back the team that changed coaches. But we are seeing no line movement really in either side or total in any direction at all. And it is quite peculiar. I, I'm signed with the Raiders here, man. If you can't back the Raiders as a six-point favorite in this spot, when can you back them? That's the Raiders fan in me. And like so much of me is, if I had to assume what this game plan is going to be for Parks Frazier and Jeff Saturday, is run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. It is going to be a run-heavy game plan that does not ask Sam Ellinger 
to make risky downfield throws. For the Raiders, what they've done a good job of is getting out to leads. They've lost three games where they've led 17-0, 17-0, and 20-0. Now, against those teams, they've also given up those leads, right, and lost those games, but I just don't think the Colts have that in them. If the Raiders get out to hot starts that we've seen them get out to, I don't think the Colts, Sam Ellinger, Jeff Saturday, Parks Frazier have it in them to have a pass-heavy game plan to get back into a football game on the road, on what I'm calling a short week. This is a short week for Jeff Saturday and the Indianapolis Colts, right? Installing things, changing things. It's going to be difficult for the Colts to do what they need to do offensively and defensively to prepare for this game with how much has changed in the coaching staff and all that stuff. So I, I do think that the Raiders is the right side. I agree that oftentimes you're backing a, a team that just recently changed its coach. But I think for the Colts this week, it's going to be a big learning week to see what they have in different players, to see that, that they have in young players on offense and defense, and just see what Jeff Saturday... Just see what Jeff Saturday can get from the you know the remaining players. I think what the best analysis of this move for the Colts that I've heard is Jim Ursay wanting a friend in the building to be his eyes and ears, right? To hear what players are thinking, what co- other coaches are thinking about the future of the team. So that way, at the end of this year, when you are doing an actual coaching hire and you are interviewing other candidates, you have a better idea of what's going on inside the locker room and maybe where there's opportunity to build out this team with a new head coach. I just don't see it as a win, as a move that's going to help this Colts team win a lot more football games down the stretch. Quick two points I want to make. Number one, then therefore having a mole as your head coach <laughs> is sounds very problematic. Yes, yes. Um, and number two, the one, one concern that I have here is the Indianapolis Colts, right? Like they started Ellinger. And they did so against like three of the best defenses in the NFL, the 10th ranked Titans, the 14th ranked Commanders and the 5th ranked Patriots. And what do one of the things that those teams have in common? They're all great against the run, right? Like Washington is great against the run. New England, not so much, but they knew that they weren't going to pass the ball so they could scheme that up. And the Colts can't run the ball to begin with. But now you're going up against the 32nd ranked Raiders defense. So while I do think that the Colts offense is in shambles and is a disaster and a catastrophe, at least you're not going up against three straight teams with like good, solid defenses. And you're going up against a team like the Raiders. I think that's why it's like, what are we going to get here? Because it can't look as worse as it did in those last three games. The last three games that they played against those top defenses, they scored a total of three points in the first half, three first half points. Could it get any worse than that? Like yeah. you're you're averaging one point per first half the last three weeks against great defenses. How much worse could you be? So I think that's possibly some of the reason why, okay, like we're not going to really move this line to seven or seven and a half because like how much worse could this team actually be? Yeah, they're, they screwed up the coaching search and they got this new guy, but like how much worse could you be? So that's a question. I'm, I, I, I don't know how much worse it can be. I think from a vibes perspective, it's an all-time low. The embarrassment in Indianapolis is, is kind of special with kind of how they've gone about things and how Ursay has gone about things. I will be really interested. I said last week on this podcast that if Cliff Kingsbury and the Arizona Cardinals lose to the Seahawks at home as two-point favorites, I don't know how Cliff coaches next year. That probably doesn't come to fruition given the seven-year contract he signed. I'll say this. If the Raiders lose to Jeff Saturday and the Indianapolis Colts on on Sunday at home as a six-point favorite. I don't know if Josh McDaniels gets back on the flight. I guess it's at home. He's not going on a flight. I just don't know how you continue to have Josh McDaniels as the coach. I, I don't. I legitimately don't. I think that things would have to change. Heads would have to roll. All right, last game of the slate here. 
Minnesota Vikings at Buffalo Bills. This game has been everywhere, and so much of it is on the quarterback position, right? I think the line opened up at seven and a half. Bills are now favored by four. Minnesota Vikings on the road against Buffalo. Josh Allen dealing with a UCL injury. They don't know. I don't think anyone knows if he's going to play. I think the latest reports have been he could play. I think the injury is manageable. We don't know if he's going to sit. However, when a line opens up at seven and a half and then gets all the way bet down to four, oftentimes that's Vegas or that's Sharps leaning on the side that a quarterback could be not playing in this game or at least limited in this game. Your reaction to the line movements, first and foremost, Buffalo going from a seven and a half point favorite to a four point favorite. And is the value now squeezed out of this line, seeing so much movement, obviously, in the favor of the Minnesota Vikings, given that Josh Allen could or could not play? Yeah, so I'll peel back the curtain a little bit. Um, You know, those of you guys that have been listening to this podcast for like several years now, you know that um, besides betting games professionally myself, I work with a lot of sharp uh, betters as well. We, I, I, I work as part of a group, uh, and I also have my customer service, my clients over at Sharp Football Analysis. And so uh, I'm privy to a lot of information. We have our network of people at different teams in different locations that feed us some information. And in addition, I also get contacted. And so in this case, I'm not going to reveal the sources, but I, I was contacted by somebody who I've had a lot of interactions with before, um, who indicated to me that um, there was an issue there with Josh Allen. And this was early Monday morning before any like whispers or rumors were really floating around massively. And the line was sitting right there. There was like one or two 48 and a halfs. Mostly the market was at 48 and this line was at seven and a half. And I took that information, did some cross-checking and we knew we had to move quickly. And so within about 30 minutes, we bet and then shipped to my customers the under on this game. It moved from 48 down to like 46 and a half. Uh, so about a point and a half. And from that point on, over the rest of you know the, the day and into the following day, th- this line has continued to trickle down by people that are playing off that steam and the continued now massive uh, news that Josh Allen might miss this game or he could play through the injury, but he won't be at 100%. Um, and obviously that's going to impact the total, right? If he's playing, he's probably not passing the ball as much, certainly not passing it deep. He's handing the ball off more. If he's not playing, we have his backup, who certainly was capable and played well during the preseason in Keenum, but it's not the same, and the downfield threat is not exactly the same either, and might they try to run the ball a little bit more? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the first move on this game was the under that was led by us. The second move on this game was then backing the Minnesota Vikings, which is not the side that we necessarily liked. Initially, seeing what the Vikings have done in recent weeks, knowing that they've played some really bad defenses, now knowing that they're going to be playing the number one toughest schedule of defenses over the next month, this offense is really going to be challenged. They're playing the number four Bills this game, then the number one Cowboys, number five Patriots, and number six Jets over the next month. Like, Get ready for really seeing if this Vikings offense is for real, because that is going to be a tough schedule that they have not played anything close to that. And the two defenses that ranked top 15 that they've played this season, they scored seven points against the Philadelphia Eagles and they scored 20 points against the Washington Commanders. Really probably should have been 13 points against the Commanders, but for that absolutely ridiculous overthrow by Taylor Heineke that led to a a drive, which was only 12 yards, that then scored a touchdown uh, for Dalvin Cook in the back of the end zone to put up 20 points there. Um, 
The one thing I'll also add here is you got a forecast issue going on. You got a dome team in, in Minnesota. They played a road game last week that was outside. You know, the temperature in DC was like, I, I might have said highs. It was 76 degrees at the stadium for kickoff. It's now going to be 34 degrees in Buffalo at kickoff on Sunday. There's 15 mile per hour winds that are currently being projected, which means the feels like temperature for this game, the entire game all the way through, is supposed to be 26 degrees. For a dome team and Kirk Cousins playing out there in what's going to feel like 26 degrees with some wind, you know, that those are all factors as well here to why we were already looking at betting the under here before even hearing about the Josh Allen potential for him being limited or out. Um, I think I think it's going to be a, a very tough game, and it's tricky to handicap right now at the current line of, I mean, this thing keeps cratering. It's down to three and a half at some spots I'm seeing out in Vegas right now, which it was five earlier this morning. So within a couple of hours, it's dropped all the way down to three and a half, and now the total's all the way down to 44 and a half. The movement continues to move in favor of the Vikings when you're looking at the um, the spread, then obviously the total coming down and down as well with the, the wind and all that stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm probably staying away from this game with how much movement there's been and how much lack of clarity there's been on whether Josh Allen's playing. I'm probably not betting this game if I'm not a sharp better, right? If I'm an average better, I'm probably not betting this game until I know for sure if Josh Allen is or isn't playing and then looking at the line and resetting my expectations on that. But I think the weather is another good note as well. In addition to the cold, the wind obviously is a huge factor. It's going to be the time now when you are betting games in November and December, always looking at at kickoff what the forecast will be. Wind is always a big factor and obviously the chills as well. I'm probably staying away from this game at four, three and a half. I think you were smart if you got on the Vikings at plus seven and a half early week or look at headlines and, and start to think about that now at four, three and a half, the value's probably squeezed out of that if you are betting Minnesota. Now, if you have an inside source, you're talking to Buffalo doctors and you see Josh Allen is going to play and he's going to be a monster. Maybe you look at that three and a half number inside with the Buffalo Bills. That's going to do it for this podcast, the Ringer Gambling Podcast with Warren Sharp. Make sure to check us out every single Wednesday. We also have other podcasts on this feed that I'm on. Thursday Night Football, me and Raheem look at Thursday Night Football every Thursday. And also Roger and I talk college football on Thursday. Then House and Warren get back on the sticks, get back on the mic to talk NFL lines as we get closer, injuries get reset, all of those things. And then my favorite podcast on this feed, honestly, this might be a bit biased, but Raheem on Sunday, his five favorite bets every Sunday, that is a phenomenal podcast to listen to as last minute prep. Make sure you tune in to all of that. Until next time, Austin Gale, Warren Sharp, The Ringer Gambling Show. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.